This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. For the last five weeks, we have produced a series of episodes in which we have interviewed policy, intelligence, and military officials about where they were on 9-11. Today and next week, I'm going to share my personal views about 9-11, about the run-up to that tragic day, and about the immediate aftermath. I'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. Right. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. Thanks for joining us today. There's been much talk over the last few weeks about 9-11 to include what happened in the run-up to that tragic day and what happened in its immediate aftermath. Much of this has focused on questions about what the CIA did and what the CIA didn't do in both of those periods. Many interviews have been conducted many articles written, many documentaries made. What I want to do in this and in the next episode is to share my personal thoughts on all of this. Why do I want to do this? Because many of you, our listeners, have reached out and asked me to do so, and because I believe there's much misunderstanding that has swirled around CIA's role 
some of it for years. So let's start with the run-up to 9-11. This will be chapter one in our story. Chapter two, the aftermath, will be next week. The theme of this period, which roughly runs from the early 1990s into 2001, is that the CIA provided strategic warning of the Al-Qaeda threat. In my view, this was arguably the loudest and most persistent warning in the history of the agency on any issue ever. The um, Committee on the Armed Services will come to order. We welcome uh, the Director of the Central Intelligence Agency. The sub-theme is that the then Director of Central Intelligence, George Tenet, saw the threat as clearly as anyone. He drove the intelligence community to focus on it, even in an environment of extremely limited resources. And he repeatedly took his concerns to the highest levels of our government. How do I know all this? Because prior to 9-11, I served for six years as the head of the staff that produces the president's daily brief. So I saw what President Clinton was receiving every day on Al-Qaeda. I served as tenant's executive assistant. I served as a deputy in CIA's counterterrorist center. And I served as President Bush's first intelligence briefer, a job I held from January 4th, 2001 to January 4th, 2002. We have noted recent activity similar to what occurred prior to the African embassy bombings, Mr. Chairman. And I must tell you that we are concerned that one or more of bin Laden's attacks could occur at any time. CIA first identified Osama bin Laden as a threat in 1993, eight years before 9-11. At that time, we saw him as a financier of terrorism. This put him on our radar screen. In 1995, we linked Ramzi Youssef, the mastermind of the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center, to bin Laden's money and to a bin Laden-run safe house in Peshawar, Pakistan. This raised our interest in bin Laden even more. That same year, the intelligence community published what's called a National Intelligence Estimate, an NIE. An NIE is an analytic product that represents the considered view of the entire intelligence community. This particular NIE warned that civil aviation in the United States was a target of terrorists. This is six years before 9-11. That NIE said, and I want to quote here, If terrorists operating in this country are methodical, they will identify serious vulnerabilities in the security of domestic flights, unquote. This NIE was provided to not only the typical national security officials in the executive branch, but it was also provided to the FAA, 
and to the airline industry itself. And like all NIEs, it was provided to Congress. They want, uh, they framed us up because it is a politically motivated case. Some ranking officials, they want to gain publicity behind, above our shoulders, because they know that we are totally innocent people. Also in 1995, the Philippine police disrupted a plot hatched in their country by Ramzi Yusuf and his uncle, a guy named Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. The uncle, who we call KSM, would go on to become the mastermind of 9-11. The Philippine plot was a multifaceted attack plan that included, as part of it, hijacking multiple airliners, flying them to the United States, blowing up most of them in flight, and crashing one of them into CIA headquarters in Virginia, where I worked. This was an important reference to terrorists using airplanes as weapons. And it was not the first reference we had seen and that we had reported on. At least one other had come before. Those who say that CIA never imagined terrorists using planes as weapons are just wrong. Because of all of this, CIA in early 1996 created a standalone unit called Alex Station to track bin Laden and his activities. The goal was to figure out exactly what bin Laden was up to. Just months later, that same year, and almost a full five years before 9-11, CIA concluded that bin Laden was much more than a terrorist financier. He was a terrorist himself. Indeed, we concluded that bin Laden was a leader of a terrorist group, that he was determined to drive the United States out of the Middle East, overthrow Sunni Arab regimes, and establish an Islamic caliphate in those countries, and that he planned to accomplish this by striking the United States wherever he could, most importantly, on our own soil here in our homeland. We even said in late 1996 that bin Laden was interested in acquiring weapons of mass destruction to try to accomplish his goals. As a result of this judgment, the CIA, led by Director Tenet, provided hundreds of classified and unclassified warnings of the threat posed by bin Laden and his group. These warnings appeared in CIA analytic products, national intelligence estimates, and testimonies before Congress, both open and closed over multiple years. One of the national intelligence estimates published in 1997 said, and I quote again, civil aviation remains a particularly attractive target for terrorist attacks in light of the fear and publicity that downing of an airliner would evoke, unquote. 
Tennant even wrote personal memos, multiple personal memos to President Clinton and to his National Security Council counterparts about the threat. The writing of such personal memos by a director was unprecedented. I never saw a director do that before, and I have never seen one do it since. Then the first evidence that CIA's warnings were on the mark appeared with crystal clarity. On the morning of August 7th, 1998, I'm George Tennant's executive assistant, and two of our embassies in East Africa, one in Kenya and one in Tanzania, within seconds of each other, were hit by massive suicide truck bombs, killing 12 Americans and over 200 Africans. These acts of terrorist violence are abhorrent. They are inhuman. We will use all the means at our disposal to bring those responsible to justice. Within two days, CIA concluded that al-Qaeda was behind the bombings. President Clinton responded with cruise missile strikes, but they did little to no damage to al-Qaeda. These attacks on our embassies drove Tenet to push the intelligence community even harder. He asked for a detailed plan to improve CIA's collection against al-Qaeda. He wrote what came to be called the We Are at War memo to drive the rest of the intelligence community to do the same. I was sitting next to him when he wrote that memo. Contrary to conventional wisdom, contrary to what you'll see on the internet, both the CIA and the broader intelligence community responded to Tenet's push. Resources were moved from other critical issues to terrorism. The focus on al-Qaeda across the community was increased. Relationships with other intelligence services were expanded and our collection improved. Part of these efforts included developing drones to collect intelligence, including, hopefully, intelligence to find bin Laden. They also included seeking increasingly aggressive covert action authorities to go after bin Laden. And they included the U.S. military working to weaponize a drone to give a president the option to take direct action against the terrorist leader. The military's work on being able to hit a target who was outdoors was completed before 9-11. Only policy approvals remained. This increased effort to collect intelligence on al-Qaeda and bin Laden paid off. CIA and the rest of the intelligence community identified in 1999 multiple al-Qaeda plots timed to the millennium. Tenet told President Clinton to expect 5 to 15 attacks against the United States, against our allies, and against our interests. In response, President Clinton ordered a worldwide operation to disrupt al-Qaeda wherever we could. Terrorists must have no doubt that in the face of their threats, America will protect its citizens and will continue to lead the world's fight for peace, freedom, and security.
with the help of intelligence and security services around the world, CIA launched operations against 38 targets in 55 countries. The pace was frenetic with significant coordination between the NSC, CIA, the Department of Justice, and the FBI. Dozens of arrests were made around the world. The disruption operation worked. There were no successful attacks during the millennium. The disruption effort by tightening security at U.S. border crossings even helped thwart an attack on the homeland an attack on Los Angeles International Airport. In Seattle today, a federal grand jury indicted the young Algerian caught with a carload of explosives as he tried to enter the United States on a ferry from Canada. Indeed, the arrest of the LAX plotter, Ahmed Rassam, trying to cross the border from Canada into the United States with both explosives and detonators, not only stopped that particular attack, It also was a manifestation of what we had been warning, of bin Laden's desire to bring the fight to the homeland. A total of six sets of remains uh, have been found on board the coal during the course of today. Then suddenly, another wake-up call. In mid-October 2000, just weeks before the presidential election, the USS Cole, a guided missile destroyer, that was anchored off the coast of Yemen, was hit by a suicide boat, killing 17 U.S. sailors and injuring 37. The alternative to the peace process is now no longer merely hypothetical. It is unfolding today before our very eyes. So at this point, the Clinton administration had been through the first World Trade Center bombing, the African embassy bombings, the millennium threats, and now the attack on the USS Cole. The president and his national security advisor, Sandy Berger, had themselves become seized with al-Qaeda and with bin Laden. As a result, Berger asked Tenet if there were no constraints on covert action and no constraints on resources how would you go after Al-Qaeda in order to degrade its ability to attack us? It's a great question from a national security advisor. The result was a CIA memo that was called the Blue Sky Memo. It was delivered to Berger, but the Clinton administration came to an end before the plan could be discussed within the interagency and before it, in some form, could become policy. The price tag on the Blue Sky Project was bigger than the entire budget of the Central Intelligence Agency. So how do we think about, how do we assess the Clinton administration's performance on Al-Qaeda? Hindsight is 2020, and it's therefore, I think, a bit unfair to ask such a question, but with that caveat, I believe the Clinton administration should have come earlier to the realization that we needed to get much more aggressive with Al-Qaeda. Sandy Berger should have asked his question 
and run a policy process on the answer either after the East Africa bombings or at minimum after the millennium threat. Why didn't this happen? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think the work has been done to answer this question. To be sure, the Clinton administration had other things on its plate. The war in the Balkans, the emergence of the Pakistani nuclear program, and other issues. And of course, the administration was dealing with the political fallout from the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Still, I think a detailed answer to this question remains to be produced. We are on the air because the United States Supreme Court has reached a decision in the case of Bush versus Gore. Then in December of 2000, George W. Bush is declared the winner of the presidential election and the transition to a new administration begins. The warnings that the CIA had been providing to the Clinton administration are now made loud and clear to the Bush administration. Terrorism in general and Al-Qaeda in particular were priority topics in Bush's first intelligence briefing when he became the Republican nominee for president. The deputy director of central intelligence at the time, John McLaughlin, tenants second-in-command, presided over this briefing. Because the al-Qaeda issue was such an important part of the briefing, McLaughlin brought with him a senior official from CIA's counterterrorism center to walk Bush through the threat. In this session, McLaughlin told candidate Bush that if he became president, Americans were likely to die from terrorism on his watch. We're just getting started with this episode of Intelligence Matters. We'll be right back after a break. I'm Michael Morrell. Stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I really don't have any comments. I look forward to talking to the president. I'm so honored that he was extended his hospitality to me and my wife yesterday. He didn't need to do this. In their first meeting after Bush was declared the winner of the election, President Clinton told Bush, that al-Qaeda would be the most significant national security issue he would face as president. Sandy Berger said the same to his successor as national security advisor, Condoleezza Rice. The al-Qaeda threat was a main topic of conversation when Tenet and his head of operations, Jim Pavitt, briefed both Bush and Vice President-elect Cheney on CIA covert actions at Blair House just a week before the inauguration. Only five days after the inauguration, Dick Clark, the man responsible for counterterrorism policy at the White House and a holdover from the Clinton administration, repackaged the Blue Sky Memo, which had been sitting in his safe since the departure of Berger. 
Clark sent the Blue Sky Memo to Rice, and he said that there was an urgent need for an early NSC principals meeting on Al-Qaeda. Like Tennant and Berger, Clark wanted to take the gloves off, and he believed action was needed immediately. On the very same day, CIA wrote a PDB item for the new president that I delivered, pinning responsibility for the coal attack on bin Laden. No action was taken against Al-Qaeda. Just a little over a month after the inauguration, Tenet gave a package of draft covert action authorities to Rice's deputy, Steve Hadley. The package included the authorities that would be required to carry out the activities in the Blue Sky Memo. The White House, for reasons that I do not know, asked that the package be withdrawn. Then the lights started blinking red. Threat reporting spiked in the spring and early summer of 2001. The PDB for two months was filled with such reporting. The titles of these pieces included Bin Laden planning multiple operations. Bin Laden attacks may be imminent. Bin Laden planning high-profile attacks. And UBL threats are real. Words such as catastrophic and multiple simultaneous attacks were used in these pieces. On April 18th, Tenet, after having been briefed the night before on new threat reporting, took over the PDB briefing. He switched seats with me and he expressed in words, in his tone, and in his body language that he believed we were going to get hit and we were going to get hit hard. Then on May 30th, Tenet took McLaughlin, his head of counterterrorism, Kofor Black, and the head of Alex Station to his weekly meeting with Rice because he was so concerned about the threat reporting. Rice asked, how bad do you think this is? Kofor Black told her that during the millennium, the threat level on a scale of 10 was at an 8. Right now, Black told Rice, we're at a 7. On July 10th, Tennant again took his CT team, his counterterrorism team, to see Rice. The head of Alex Station told her, and I want to quote here because it's important, there will be a significant terrorist attack in the coming weeks or months, end quote. Tenet and his deputies said the United States must go on the offensive against Al-Qaeda. In response, three days later, the White House held a deputies meeting on Al-Qaeda, but no action was taken. I should add and this is the first time I've ever said this publicly, is that I strongly sensed during the spring and summer of 2001 that Tenet was deeply frustrated with the White House. I sensed that Tenet felt that the White House just did not get it. I think this is why he went to such great lengths, including taking over the briefing from me, taking his C-team to see Rice twice, I think he was trying anything he could to get their attention. 
Then the threat reporting dried up. Gone. It turned out that Al-Qaeda, expecting another round of cruise missile strikes after the 9-11 attacks, went to ground. They went to the hills, literally, and our sources lost access. Despite the lack of new reporting, Tenet remained deeply concerned. He asked for a review of all the previous threat reporting, of everything we then knew, to make sure we had not missed anything. In this process, CIA's leadership learned that officers in the counterterrorist center had learned in early 2000 that two al-Qaeda terrorists had visas to enter the United States, but they had failed to alert their chain of command or to formally watchlist them. Now both terrorists were in the United States. So Tenet ordered an immediate fix to the mistake, and the two were watchlisted in mid-August. Their names were Khalid al-Midhar and Nawath al-Hamzi. They turned out to be part of the 9-11 plot. The next data point in this storyline is 9-11 itself, with 3,000 people killed. It was the largest attack on the American homeland in the history of the country. Do you swear or affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So how to assess, again, how to think about CIA's performance in the run-up to 9-11. On one level, perhaps the most important level, CIA never got an issue more right than it got Al-Qaeda before 9-11. Never did CIA warn as much and as loudly about something as it did about bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. CIA was created to warn a strategic surprise, and it did that in spades with bin Laden. The intelligence that we provided our senior policymakers about the threat Al-Qaeda posed, its leadership and its operational span across over 60 countries, and the use of Afghanistan as a sanctuary was clear and direct. On another level, though, there was a shortcoming. CIA and our partners in the rest of the intelligence community, most important, the National Security Agency, did not, pre-9-11, penetrate bin Laden's inner circle to the point where we would have learned enough information to stop the plot, to stop the attack. We did this after 9-11 routinely, which we'll talk about in the next episode, but we did not do it beforehand. I think there were two reasons for this. First, Al-Qaeda had safe haven given to them by the Taliban, which made them very difficult to get at from an intelligence perspective. And perhaps most important, CIA, when Tenet took over, was nearly broken by a decade of budget cuts, the so-called Cold War peace dividend. Our budget had been cut by 25%. The number of staff officers had been cut by 25%. CIA was under great pressure on resources. We needed much more than we had. Tenet made repeated requests to the Office of Management and Budget for more resources, for more funding. George Tenet understands the essential role Congress must play in the intelligence community's work. 
Since joining our administration, he has maintained a strong relationship in Congress. He knows well the concerns of the intelligence community as well. He knows that I must have the unvarnished truth. He knows how critical, timely, reliable intelligence is to our nation's security. Tennant even wrote a personal letter to President Clinton asking for more resources to fund a bigger effort against bin Laden and al-Qaeda. This too was unprecedented for a director. I can't remember anyone else doing something like this. Mr. President, thank you very much. Uh, I just would like to take a moment just to read a brief statement. The administration did not respond to these requests. It was only in 1999 when the then Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, saw the need that the intelligence community received additional resources. And this was done over the objections of the Clinton administration. But even this resource infusion was for only one year, so it was of little help in sustaining our operations over the next two years, the two years immediately before 9-11. CIA also made a mistake. It was the watchlisting error I just talked about. It was an honest mistake, born of a massive workload in Alex Station, with thousands of cables coming in to Alex Station every day. That's not an excuse. It's just an explanation. At the end of the day, it was still a mistake. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. It is worth asking what would have happened if the CIA had watchlisted the two when it first learned about them in early 2000. We don't know, of course, but most likely they would have been denied entry to the United States. And in this case, we would not have discovered the 9-11 plot from them. Indeed, the individual who was supposed to have been the 20th hijacker was not allowed entry to the United States because an alert immigration agent concluded that he was attempting to illegally enter the United States and send him back to his point of origin, which was Dubai, but with no knowledge gained on what he was really up to. I should add that CIA was not the only organization to misstep prior to 9-11. The FBI officers working in Alex Station at the time, of which there were several, with computer access, also missed the Midhar and Hamzi information. Several were aware of the information, but did not act on it. And when we did watchlist them in mid-August, the FBI assigned the case to an agent who had just finished his rookie year. And the Bureau labeled the case routine, the lowest possible priority level. But again, if they had been found, they probably would have simply have been deported. 
There was also a memo from the FBI's Phoenix field office of multiple Arabs taking flight training and not being interested in takeoffs and landings. This reporting was not acted on by FBI headquarters, nor was it shared with the interagency, including CIA. And then there was Zacharias Musawi. The FBI arrested him on August 16th, 2001 on immigration charges. Musawi too was training to fly airplanes and suspicious flight instructors had called the FBI. Musawi was in the country illegally and he was arrested. But the FBI, for legal reasons, did not search Musawi's luggage, the contents of which tied him to Al-Qaeda. It turned out that Musawi knew about the 9-11 plot, and he was in our custody. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would later say that had he known about Musawi's arrest, that he would have postponed the attacks, believing them compromised. What about the policy in the Bush administration? How to think about that? I think this question has confused many people, as there are two distinct issues that need to be addressed. The first is the strategic warning about al-Qaeda that the Bush team received multiple times, even before it took office. And the second is the threat reporting that came across their desks in the spring and summer. I think you have to look at these issue separately to assess the administration's performance on policy. On the first issue, I think it's fair to say that despite the strategic warnings from the intelligence community and from the outgoing Clinton team, and despite strong recommendations coming from Dick Clark inside the White House, the Bush team did not do a policy review on al-Qaeda as early as it should have, given the compelling nature of the strategic threat. I believe that that policy review should have occurred immediately after the inauguration. Had it, perhaps it would have resulted in a much more aggressive policy. Perhaps it would have resulted in the blue sky recommendations being approved. But also, of course, perhaps not. The threat reporting that we received in the spring and summer of 2001 was not specific as to time, nor place, nor manner of attack. Almost all of the reports focused on al-Qaeda activities outside the United States. With regard to the second issue, senior Bush administration officials have always said that the threat reporting from the spring and summer was never specific as to time, place, and method. That's completely fair, and it is an accurate statement. But the threat reporting for the millennium was also not particularly specific. But President Clinton nonetheless ordered a comprehensive disruption effort that ended up paying huge dividends. I believe this should have been done by the Bush administration as well. How high a priority was fighting al-Qaeda in the Bush administration? I believe the Bush administration in the first eight months uh, considered terrorism uh, an important issue, but not an urgent issue. To be fair to the Bush administration... The threat posed by al-Qaeda was a new kind of threat. It was a threat from a non-state actor. Non-state actors were not an issue the last time the Republicans had been in power. 
The Bush national security team initially focused on nation states and the threat they could pose to the United States. It took the Bush team time to learn that a ragtag group of extremists operating in dirt training camps in the middle of Afghanistan could pose an immense threat to America. Well, please be seated, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for your courtesy. Congress should be not left out of this assessment either. The Gore Commission on Airline Safety recommended in early 1997 a number of enhancements to airline security, including many of the changes that would eventually be implemented after 9-11. But Congress, before 9-11, did not pass into law a single one of these recommendations, largely under pressure from an airline industry that didn't want to spend the money and that said they feared the security enhancements would inconvenience passengers. Would any of the intelligence, law enforcement, policy, or legislative missteps have made a difference? Would any of them have prevented the 9-11 attacks? That's very hard to say. It is, I think, easy to make arguments for why they could have made a difference, but it's much harder to make an argument that they would have made a difference. Unfortunately, we will never know. But all of these, particularly when put together, are why I have always called 9-11 a national failure. One more thought. In the context of what I just outlined, one way of looking at Bin Laden's success on 9-11 is that he got lucky with timing. Time ran out on the Clinton administration when it wanted to take the gloves off, and it took time for the Bush team to fully understand the threat. Bin Laden threaded the needle. That concludes chapter one of this story. Join us next week for the second chapter the immediate aftermath of 9-11. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. around you can find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader